I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a uh, prolific economic and medical commentator. Always enjoy having him on the program. Uh, he will be joining me in segments two and three today. You know, there's no doubt, as we've been talking about here on the program, that inflation is here. If you've purchased lumber or food or copper wire or many other consumer items, you know that the price of all these items has gone up significantly. Now, the Fed has openly stated, and if you're a new listener here, when I talk about the Fed, I'm talking about the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is a private group of bankers that control U.S. monetary policy. Now, the Federal Reserve has openly stated that they are looking for inflation. I'll give you just a little bit of recent commentary from the Fed. Neil Kashkari, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, said in December of last year, if we generated some modest inflation, I think we would consider that a success. Charles Evans, who is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, said if we got 3% inflation, that would not be so bad. That was just a month after Mr. Koshkari made his comments. That was in January of this year. Lael Brainerd, who is a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, said this, and I quote, By committing to achieve inflation outcomes that average 2% over time, the committee would make clear in advance that it would accommodate rather than offset modest upward pressures to inflation and what could be described as a process of opportunistic reflation. Isn't it interesting how all the members of the Federal Reserve use very academic language to describe inflation? Ms. Brainerd stated this approach will help move inflation expectations back to our 2% objective, which is critical to preserve conventional policy space. That was in February of this year. So there, three months in a row, we have three members of the Fed who are openly stating they want inflation. Now, here we are just a few months after Ms. Brainerd made her comments, and we have inflation. Now, the reality is these policies contribute to the wealth gap. Certainly, there's a lot of social tensions given how difficult it is or given how uh, much more difficult it is for those at the lower end of the earning spectrum to meet their everyday needs. And when you take a look at who benefits from low interest rates, obviously that's the wealthy. So there is no denying the fact that the wealth gap has gotten wider. Now, there was an article that I read this past week that was authored by Michael Leibowitz, and Mr. Leibowitz said that, uh, and, and, and shared some comments, I should say, that spending on food and shelter comprise over 70% of the after-tax income of the lowest income classes, but only 25% of the highest income classes. So as inflation hits, as inflation surges, it hits those at the lower end of the earnings spectrum hardest, 
because they have to spend more of their discretionary income just to provide for essentials. Now, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that over the past year, food and beverage prices rose at an average annual rate of 8.84%. Let's just say 9%. Now, if you've been to the grocery store, you have to probably guess that they're being conservative in their estimate. We certainly have seen the prices of uh, meats, of, of, of other uh, produce items increase significantly more than that over the past year. But let's just use the 9% number. For a family in the $15,000 to $30,000 income class, total spending would have to rise by 2.07%, let's just say 2% on average, in order to maintain the same level of consumption of food and beverages. Now, if you take a look at the highest income class, they need to spend only another 0.67% of their income. So the point is this. The further up the income ladder you go, the less inflation affects you. And arguably, the more lower interest rates may benefit you. Now, if we look at housing prices, and if you've looked at real estate, you certainly know this is true. Over the same period, housing prices rose about 7% on average. So again, looking at the families in the lowest income class, they would have to spend another 4% or so of their income to maintain the same level of housing. They're spending 6% more of their income to live the same place and consume the same amount of food and beverages And the families in the highest income class will pay only 1.42% more. So when you take a look at the numbers, you see that those at the lowest level now are spending 6% more of their income for food and housing. The highest income class is only about 2% more. Now the reality is wages at the lower end of the income spectrum are not keeping up. From 2009 to 2019, according to the Congressional Research Service, the lowest income groups saw their income rise by 11% total over that 10-year time frame. Roughly speaking, that's 1% per year. The highest income groups saw their income rise by about 3% annually over the same period. So when you go back and take a look at the numbers... We've got the lowest income group having their income increase by 1% per year and their outlays for food and for housing increase at 6% per year. On the higher end, you've got expenditures increasing by 2% and pay increasing by 3%. They're doing just fine. That is how these easy money policies really discriminate against lower-income earners. Now, if you're not a lower-income earner and you're listening to this today, why is that important to you? Well, here's why. If the Fed continues this policy, if the prices of food and shelter and other necessities continue to surge higher without equivalent increases in income, wealth inequality will worsen even further. 
And at a certain point, there's going to be a lot of political pressure for the Fed to reverse their policy. Now, I'm not totally convinced that is going to happen at any time soon, but should they reverse their policy, I believe that will be the needle that pops the bubble we now see in stocks and real estate. Now, there's a lot of folks out there now talking about the two-bucket approach to managing money. An imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but I wrote about this back in 2011 in my book, Economic Consequences. And in the last segment, I'll show you how many countries around the world and some evidence that many folks are now adopting that approach to managing their money. Now, if you'd like to learn more, I would invite you to get the RLA app. It's free, and it gives you access to all of our free resources. You can just go to the App Store on your smartphone, search for your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, your RLA. And you'll find the app. You can download it for free, and that will give you access to the weekly newsletter, Portfolio Watch. It will give you access to our podcast. And you'll also get access to the weekly headline roundup uh, webinar, which happens every Monday at noon live. And you can get it live on the app or the replay. So, again, go to the App Store, search your RLA, spelled all as one word. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. And uh, you can get all of our resources for free. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. Joining me again on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a prolific author and commentator. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. Market-ticker.org, if you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know that I have Carl on the program here every few months and uh, get his take on things. It's always a, a lively conversation. And Carl, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, Carl, we talked a couple of years ago, well, let's just say a year and a half ago, that, uh, you know, all this money creation, rent moratoriums, uh, you know, all, all the things that were put in place as a, as a response to COVID, that we would ultimately have to pay the price. And it seems like maybe that rooster is starting to come home to roost, if you will. Yeah, I think I've been hearing a little baying in the, the early morning hours. It sounds an awful lot like a rooster. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, you know, it's funny because when this whole thing started, I uh, I was railing repeatedly about how this was a complete, st- it was stupid, first off, uh, it's simply on the facts that historically speaking, there's never been a pandemic that's lasted for more than two cycles. And typically, uh, the, you know, two winters, one one year, maybe two, but, you know, spanning two cold periods of time. And if you look at the history of things, that's that's how they all played out. Every last one of them, all the way back into the, the late 1800s. Uh, but our response has never been the kind of thing that we did. Uh, we, we put trillions of dollars into the economy. And one of the things that is, has become evident is that the, the so-called economist class has always said, with the housing crash and with the uh, with the tech wreck, that uh, all the inflation, it's all going to go into assets. It's all going to be okay uh, because there's no cost push, uh, and it and it's cost push on production that ends up ultimately strangling the economy. And I, I have always said that's a load of garbage. It it just takes longer to sh- 
to show up and hose you. <laughs> it's, it's not a question of whether or not it will. It's how fast. And and yet, certainly, when you look at the 1970s and, uh, uh, you know, as you got into the later part of the decade, the cost push that happened specifically through union labor and the the cost of living index that got built into their contracts was a huge part of why it all blew up in everybody's face in the later part of the decade. Uh, well, what we've done now is essentially throw gasoline on that fire in a major way because you have these rent moratoriums, uh, which are about to end. And when they do, all those people who haven't paid rent for over a year are going to have to fork up their entire year's worth of rent because it, it wasn't forgiven. It was just suspended. Well, if, if you were you know, supposed to pay $1,000 a month for your apartment, you don't got twelve grand lying around. Nobody's got that. So I don't know what you think is going to happen there. And then when you start throwing money at people to not work uh, and and you jack the cost of living, which we have done, then what happens to the service industry? It basically goes away because you can't get people to come work. And we're seeing that now. Uh, so you and, and by the way, this is now starting to show up in semi-skilled areas, too. Uh, you're starting to see problems with labor. In, in jobs like CNAs that are all over hospitals, uh, those are, are certified nurse assistants. That's a, a certificate program, doesn't require nearly as much formal education as, as becoming an actual RN, an actual nurse, or an LPN. Uh, but they are, they are the people who, without them, uh, you don't have the care that's necessary to take, take care of the patients. And so this is now starting to show up in those places, along with home health care, which, uh, you know, which is another big thing. But the pay in all of these positions is relatively poor. And uh, if, if you cannot make enough to manage to get by on what you earn, you're not going to go to work. Why would you do it? So, Carl, let's let's dig into these rent moratoriums, because I think that is an event uh, that really is kind of off the radar for most people. How and when do you see that um, that that's, that that uh, ending of these moratoriums? How do you see that affecting the economy? I think it's going to be catastrophic, and and I don't see how the government gets out of this. This is this is a Donald Trump thing. Um, he he did this. He's responsible for it. Biden has done nothing to fix it, of course, because actually facing up to what was going on when he took office would have you know would have been an immediate crash in the, in both uh, the the labor market and other places. But the the issue that's going to come up here is that for those people who owe that money. Uh, they're going to have to pay. They're not going to have it. They're going to get evicted. And then the next question is going to come, well, you know, what does that do to the labor base? Because let's face it, the the folks who work at McDonald's or Walmart or, you know, in the service jobs, uh, you know, restaurant service, whatever, uh, there's basically two groups. There's very young people and some slightly older folks now who are basically living in their parents' basements. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's essential. That's their housing situation. And the rest of them are renting something. Well, they haven't had to pay rent for an extended period of time. Now, some of some of them have paid anyway. They've had jobs, and they've wisely realized that this moratorium will eventually end. And if they, you know, if they have the ability, they've done it. But there are plenty of people who haven't. And when that ends, all of that back rent is due. They're not going to be able to pay. So those people are going to leave and go somewhere else. Uh, some of them will try to dodge that obligation. Some will be successful. Some will not. 
Uh, in a lot of cases, they will succeed. But then that housing stock is probably going to turn over because those people, you know, about 40 percent of your rental units are owned by small individual investors. They're, they're owned by people like you and I that have a couple, you know, we have a couple of houses or, you know, whatever, and we rent them out to people and things like this. All those people have had to pay property taxes and maintenance and upkeep and everything else on these places for the last year, and they've gotten no income. So do you see this as impacting the real estate market, which is already, in my view, you know, at, at, at higher levels, uh, relatively speaking, than we saw in 2006, 2007? Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to have a terrible impact there and it's it's going to be very bad because what's likely to occur is that those individuals that are in the small rental market now, which like I said is about 40% of the total, uh, are almost certainly going to end up being forced out. Those properties will end up being sold to the large conglomerates that that manage a lot of the bigger blocks of rentals within the United States. Uh so that's going to be your hedge fund people and things like this. And then the rent's going to go up. And so that's going to put a further squeeze on the residential real estate side of things. And, and again, this is cost push because when you look at the, at the you know, if, if you've got to pay $1,000 to rent a trailer, uh, by the time you pay for your power bill and, you know, your way to get to work and everything and your food and everything else, you can't live on $15 an hour. It's not possible. And so, you know, how do you resolve that? that distortion there when you've taken what used to be a, you know, four or $500 a month rent and turn it into a thousand. Well, you don't. And, and the reality is, is that the only way to fix this is to collapse that price structure back, collapse that inflation. But uh, boy, oh boy, is that going to make some people take some losses? And you know that there's, you know, there's absolutely no appetite for that kind of thing, either within the Fed or within the government. But Carl, isn't that inevitably where we're headed? I mean, we're seeing uh, inflation is here, as we've talked about, but inflation can only continue for a period of time. And at some point, don't we have to see this deflationary collapse, even if it follows a hyperinflationary event? Yeah, and, and that's so historically speaking, what ends up happening in a nation that goes down the road that we went down over this last year is that. You get the you get the inflation, the the monetary distortion gets put into the economy and it's it takes when you do it, it takes 12 to 18 months to show up in the numbers. OK, and, and I've been saying this since this thing started. I said, you're going to see this in 2021, because when Trump started this nonsense, it wasn't going to show up right away. Everybody was going to think it was great. It was wonderful. You know, we got to take care of all these people, blah, 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 blah. Well, come 2021. Now we're here. And the last set of prints that came out, if you annualize, that's 15%. So that's what we now have in the, in the, yeah, well, that's what we have. I mean, that's Jimmy Carter territory. Okay. But remember that what happened the last time around when we did this, Carter got the blame for it because he was in office when it blew up in everybody's face, but it was not, it was not his policies that caused it because of course it was what was done before that came back and roosted on people. It was actually mostly Nixon who was responsible for it. Nixon infamously literally assaulted Burns in his office, put him up against the wall and told him to keep it, you know, keep interest rate policy under suppression. And, and, you know, then of course he gets kicked out of office. Ford gets in and does absolutely nothing. And he loses to Carter. Carter is the one who ended up sitting in the left seat loaded in everyone's face. 
But that's, you know, Carter's policies were not there. But what a nation has to choose when that's when that happens, you get you got two choices. One of them is and in, in the 19 in the 1970s, and early 80s, we had a buffer because most of the second persons in households were not working. So there was a way to stop the inflation, but don't collapse it and be able to absorb that within the, the middle class and those people below. And that was for the second person and the second adult in the household to go to work. And, and we also added to the welfare society, which allowed single mothers to be able to continue to make that functional and, and not end up all out in the street with their kids. We used that. It's gone. We came into this one with the second adult already working. We don't have that buffer. So now the only alternative to a stagflationary collapse is to collapse that inflation back out of the system. And if you don't do it, when you have to do it, and there's no buffer, you end up with a situation like what happened in Venezuela or Argentina. You end up with, society, with a potential societal collapse and a political collapse. And down that road can end up, you know, you can go very bad places with that. You take a look at what happened in Weimar Germany and, and what did that potentiate? We got Hitler out of that. Well, Carl, take a look, too, at, what the, at the policies that are being proposed. I mean, there's talk now of a, it, it's hard to even believe, $6 trillion budget with nearly a $2 trillion deficit. And this is post-pandemic. I mean, the, the, there's, there's nobody talking about, let's be proactive about this. They're going to end up waiting for this, the, this terrible event to occur, and then the, the reaction is going to have to be reactive versus proactive, or the reset is going to be reactive versus proactive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing about it is that the last time around when this happened, when the Fed started aggressively, you know, when Paul Volcker was in charge of the Fed and they started aggressively raising rates, uh, there's there's this chestnut that goes around right now that they can't do it because the federal government would instantaneously go bankrupt because of all the treasuries that are currently outstanding. And that's not true. Uh, those current, Those currently issued treasuries that are outstanding continue to pay their current coupon up until the point at which they mature. They're not callable. And so as, as a result, what ends up happening to those people that hold the, hold the longer end of the bond curve is they get massacred on the, pre, the net present value of their holdings. Okay, well, who's got those? Well, to a large degree, banks and pension funds. <laughs> okay, so bye-bye pension, uh, because you know it's a net present value on a 30-year bond, if uh, you know if the the one that you hold pays three percent and the new one pays six, well, three percent times of the face value times however many years are left, right? I mean that's a discount that immediately gets put on the value of that instrument. So, but but what that will do is force the government to stop deficit spending because the only way that you can possibly avoid a, a you know a, a political collapse is to tax what you spend first. Well, we're chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I'd encourage you to check it out. The website, again, is market-ticker.org. The good news is Carl will be joining me again for another segment, so stay with us. We'll be back after these words. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Carl Denninger. Uh, if you're just joining us, uh, Carl is a prolific author, commentator. You can read his work at market-ticker.org. Uh, the website again is market-ticker.org. Uh, so, Carl, in the as we were finishing up the last segment, um, you had said uh, made a statement that uh, 
you know, the, 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 the situation with the, the bond market would essentially force the government to quit deficit spending. Um, is that even possible? I mean, think, think about what that does to Social Security, to Medicare, and, and what does the world look like if that happens? Well, Social Security, all right, so let's, let's split that out, okay? Social Security has a relatively small operating deficit. It, it, it does exist, but it's not very large. And adjusting the tax rate in order to close that gap is not very difficult. A, a relatively modest, say, a 1% increase in the FICA tax rate uh, and moving the indexing up, in other words, the cap where you cap off, you don't pay any more during a year, moving that up would close that gap. It's not very hard to do. Medicare is a different story entirely. Medicare is 80% underfunded. And that is, and, and, and Medicaid, of course, is not funded at all. Medicaid is a straight giveaway, uh, part of which falls on the federal government, the other part falls on the states. You can't solve those with tax increases. I mean, you know, you, you, what you're going to put a five, you're going to make the Medicare tax 500% of what it is. <laughs> That's not going to happen. So right. the only way to solve the problem that doesn't involve a, a catastrophic collapse within the government is to tear the medical monopolies down. And yet they've been the ones that have been driving every single bit of the COVID response. And, and they've been doing it for monetary purposes. It's purely financial. It's, it, it, you take a look at what has happened, the entire, the entire winter surge that we had, the 300,000 deaths could have been avoided. And we knew this scientifically. We knew how to stop it. But we didn't even look. And this is just off data that's been published on the government's own clinical trials website. Why? Because it would have cut off the medical monopolists and the money that they've made. One of the first things that Donald Trump did when this started through his health and human services secretary was essentially put a bounty on people going into the hospital and on being put on ventilators. And we knew at the time that was done that 95% of the time out of Wuhan, if you got put on a ventilator with this disease, you died. So in other words, they put a bounty on doing something that was going to kill you, All right? And that's the sort of crazy, it's a, and it didn't end there. It's been going on for the last year and a half. It's still going on, but that's the sort of crazy that has been driven by allowing the medical industry to essentially drive all of the federal budget and spending priorities. And that's the data, All right? I mean, you don't have to like it, but when you're, when you're dropping over a trillion dollars a year between Medicare and Medicaid, uh, that's that's what's driving the budget. So d does this end up, Carl, at a point in your view that we have rationing that, you know, somebody who has reached a certain age, maybe is not eligible for Medicare to cover an elective procedure like a hip replacement? I mean, do we get rationing? How, do, how does this play out in your view? You know, it's very difficult to know because Medicare, one of the, one of the the niceties, if you will, is that once you reach 65, you go on Medicare. I mean, you do the traditional, you know, part part A, part B uh, plan. You don't, you know, you don't do the advantage stuff. You don't play the games. Uh, the Medicare has a cost plus a little negotiated price for essentially everything, and it's good anywhere at any medical center that accepts Medicare patients. So. Many people think that this, you know, the kind of hosing that you can get in the private sector, we get balance billed for something or, you know, or you're out of network or whatever, that all of that goes away when you turn 65. 
So what has happened is that we have had cost containment there to some extent. Even so, it's ridiculously overblown. The reason it's overblown is is largely out of the farm of the business, but not entirely. And and then on top of that, what that does is that shoves all of that back down in the private sector and the people that are not on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and so, how does that resolve? I'm not entirely sure. What I what I do know is that the the best way to break this is to break the monopolies and start ad- addressing the fact that all of these practices that the private sector engages in when it comes to medical when it comes to medical care generally they've been illegal for over a hundred years under 15 USC chapter one they're criminal felonies and yet we've refused to prosecute any of them and allowed this game to go on for four decades now and if we don't stop it I don't see how the federal government gets out of this box. So I mean, the, the other alternative is they just say, "Well, you know, we're not going to do it at all." But then, but then, you know, how is how's that going to work out? You're going to have every granny in the street with a shotgun. Carl, drill down on that a little bit because a lot of our listeners are saying monopolies. They're they're you know explain where where that comes from. Explain how that works to our listeners that might not be familiar with that. Okay, so 15 United States Code says that any chapter one says that any attempt or actual price fixing or collusion to restrain trade is a crime. It's not a civil offense. It's not something you get sued over. It's a felony. You do 10 years in a slam slam for it. Now, that means that if I, am, if I start buying up medical centers and local practices and then I turn around and I raise prices and essentially force all the independent physicians out of business. That's a crime. That's, that's not something you get sued over. That's something you go to prison for. When, it, when I used to run an internet company, I wouldn't even have lunch with one of my competitors because it was a risk that you could, you, know, you start talking about pricing or something, you, you could violate that law. Right? I mean, that's, that's illegal. There's, and that's been, the, that law has been on the books for over 100 years. We have not had a single criminal prosecution and in at least 30 years. This has been twice challenged all the way to the Supreme Court, Royal Drug, and then Maricopa County. Both times the Supreme Court said, nope, the medical providers and insurance providers are not exempt from this law. This is, there, is, there is another law called McCarran-Ferguson that exempts some insurance provision. They said that essentially group buying discounts are not the business of insurance. And so putting together these kinds of plans is illegal. And yet after those decisions were handed up, not one prosecution. So, Carl, give our listeners maybe just a, a real-life example uh, of, a, of a treatment or a, uh, a medical service and, and uh, just to kind of drive the point home. Sure. So let's say that you go in and you need to have some minor operation done. Okay, well, in order for you to have an operation done, you've got to be anesthetized, right? So you have, so the anesthesiologist has to, you know, stick the mask on your face and you get the, you know, you get the, uh, the, the mix of chemicals that knocks you out. Okay, so that's a skilled profession, fairly highly skilled one, and, and there's a bill for this. If you are insured, whether privately or on Medicare, you get that bill, there will be something like, Anesthesiologist charged three thousand dollars. Negotiated discount twenty eight hundred bucks. Final charge two hundred dollars. 
<laughs> okay. Now here's the problem. You have just been coerced into buying that insurance or that Medicare policy because the anesthesiologist only got paid 200 bucks. He didn't get paid $3,000. The only person who pays the $3,000 is the person without insurance. Well, that's illegal to collude like that. That's against the law and has been for 100 years. Carl, as you're talking, I think it'd be interesting to see, um, to go back and take a look at uh, contributions to uh, the campaigns of politicians to see, uh, you know, how, how prominent is the medical industry? Is that a, is that a question you can answer? Yeah, it's, it's enormous. The lobbying and the contributions are crazy. And in fact, if you want to know why there's no conversation allowed in social media and other areas of the media, um, not just on social media, but generally, uh, with regards to what we should have done with regards to COVID and whether or not what we did actually killed people, all you have to do is turn your television on or turn or open your Twitter application and see who's running advertising. I mean, just, just watch television for half an hour. You're talking about half the ads are for some pharma product. That's, I, I open up Twitter on my phone. Same thing. Right? Here's this ad for this drug in case you have this disease. Here's this ad for that drug or whatever. I mean, it, you know, he who butters the bread calls the tune, right? And uh, and that's and the same thing is true in the political sphere. If you look at and it's not on one side of the aisle, it's on both. So anyone who thinks that this is a, a Democrat problem or Republican problem, you're wrong. It is everywhere. And it and it's also extends to the states. And so you see the same sort of thing within the so-called public health institutions. We had all sorts of research, all sorts of studies that could have been done with very cheap off-patent medications very early on during COVID. There was no financial incentive to do it. The people who should have been doing it are the NIH and all of these so-called teaching hospitals, the John Hopkins, the Vanderbilts, the Mayos. These are all these people have tax exemptions. And the reason they have tax exemptions is they're supposed to be acting in the interest of the public. Well, why didn't they run those studies? And the reason is there's no money in it. When was the last time you saw an advertisement on television or on some social media app for some off-patent cheap drug? Never, because there's no money. So, Carl, time for one last question. I want to go back full circle and kind of finish where we started. So as we now have you know, fifth, inflation in the teens, if you look at the real numbers, um, and you have massive government spending being proposed that can only be financed through more money creation, how do you see this inevitable reset playing out? Is it going to be reactive, or do you think cooler heads will prevail and they'll say, look, we've got to deal with this? Well, I think at some point somebody's going to stand up somewhere and say it has to be dealt with. You can hope it comes out of the Fed uh, and they essentially tell Congress to cut it out, which is what happened the last time. If not, and, and it's entirely possible it won't. I, I, I can't get in Jerome Powell's head. I have no idea what, what he's thinking. But if that doesn't happen and this continues, then the the next thing you'll see is stagflation, which is already starting. And it comes with supply disruptions, which is already starting. And when it gets to the point that gets critical, uh, you have the potential for a very serious civil unrest sort of scenario. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. I would encourage you to check out his work at market-ticker.org. Carl, always appreciate your perspective, and I would love to have you back down the road. Thanks for being with us today. Anytime. Thanks. We will be back after these words. 
I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you're listening to RLA Radio. Glad you decided to listen in today. And thanks again to my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger, for joining me on today's program. In the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that as inflation now is kicking in in earnest, and it's becoming quite obvious in many parts of the economy, it's a lot harder for those at the lower end of the income spectrum to pay for food, to pay for shelter, to pay for housing. As I reported, over the last year, incomes at the lowest income levels have increased about 1%, and yet outlays as a percentage of that income for both food and housing have increased about 6%. So these households are going backwards. Wages are not keeping pace with inflation in essentials like food and housing. Now, at highest income levels, those folks have seen an increase of about 3% in their income, and their outlays for essentials have only increased by 2% of their income. Obviously, when you're buying essentials and you have a low level of income, a greater percentage of your income is consumed as prices go up. So what we have is this income gap, this wealth inequality that is widening as a result, in my view, of these policies. So the question is, will the Fed continue to print? Or, as I talked about with Carl Denninger, will there be political pressure to say, wait a minute, we have to address inflation. And if they do, what that means is, the government won't be able to spend as much money as they are now. Deficit spending would have to be either eliminated or significantly reduced. Now, given that there was recently a $6 trillion budget proposed, as mind-boggling as that is, and more than a $1.8 trillion deficit as a result of a $6 trillion budget, it seems that the policy moving ahead will have to be easy money. But as that policy continues to be pursued, we're going to see more inflation. So that's why you have to look at a two-bucket approach. You need one bucket of stable assets because at some point, when the money printing stops, and it will, the late economist Herbert Stein who I often quote said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. That's certainly true of money creation. And when it stops, that will likely be the pin that pops the asset bubble that I believe we see now in stocks and in real estate. So the two-bucket approach, which has been imitated by many, but I've been talking about it for 10 years, has you take your assets and put them into two buckets. One bucket of assets that's, de that's designed to be stable and another bucket of assets that is, is designed to protect you from inflation. Now, interestingly, Russia this past week passed legislation to allow the country's sovereign wealth fund to invest in gold. So here we have the sovereign wealth fund of Russia essentially adopting an approach very similar to the two-bucket approach that we've been talking about here for a very long time. 
Now, if you would like to learn more, I've got a copy of my book uh, that was released last year. Uh, it was a bestseller on Amazon. It's titled Revenue Sourcing, and it outlines the two-bucket approach. And if you'd like to get a copy of that book, I'd be glad to send you one for free this month. Just go to myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Let me know where to mail you a copy of the book. I'd be glad to do that for free. Uh, just, again, go to myrevenuesourcingbook.com. Let me know where to mail the book, and we will be glad to get one out to you. So let me tell you a bit more about Russia and how they are now investing their sovereign wealth fund. This is an article from Zero Hedge. I'm going to give you just a bit from the article, and I quote, In a significant and strategic development for monetary metals, the government of the Russian Federation has just introduced legislation which will allow Russia's giant national wealth fund to invest in gold and other precious metals. Now, in a note accompanying the gold announcement, the Russian government refers to gold as a traditional protective asset and says that the move to add gold will introduce more diversification into the National Wealth Fund's investment allocation while promoting overall safety and profitability for the fund. Now, as you listen to that, and that's just a bit from the article, and if you would like to read the article for yourself, just go to the App Store, uh, search for your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, uh, take a look at the most recent newsletter, and all the links to the articles are, are noted there, and I'd encourage you to do that. But reading between the lines, when the note accompanying the gold announcement says that gold is a traditional protective asset, and it promotes overall safety and profitability for the fund, what is the Russian government's outlook for fiat currencies? The United States Mint also issued a statement last week about silver. You can go to the United States Mint's Facebook page and see the announcement. The U.S. Mint said this, The United States Mint is committed to providing the best possible online experience to its customers. The global silver shortage has driven demand for many of our bullion and numismatic products to record heights. They said, as the demand for silver remains greater than the supply, the reality is such that not everyone will be able to purchase a coin. So when you take a look at the National Wealth Fund of the Russian Federation that is now openly buying gold, and the U.S. Mint is openly stating that silver demand is greater than silver supply, that tells you that you need to be considering seriously the two-bucket approach. Now, again, if you're just joining me, I'd love to send you a copy of my revenue sourcing book that uh, was on the bestseller list last year in 2020 when it was released. It outlines the two-bucket approach. I'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy. Go to myrevenuesourcingbook.com, and I'll be glad to get you a copy. And as I mentioned earlier in this segment, if you don't yet have the RLA app, all you need to do is go to the App Store on your smartphone, Search for your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, and you'll see the app. It is free, and all the content on the app is free as well. Hope you enjoyed the program this week. More importantly, I hope you got something you can use. I will be back again next week, same time. Be sure to tune in.